Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is South African shaman. My guest is John Lockley, who is one of the first white men in recent history to become a fully initiated Sangoma and the Zosa lineage of South Africa. John is author of Leopard Warrior, a journey into the African teachings of ancestry, instinct, and dreams. John shares his time between South Africa and Canada. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, John. It's such a pleasure and honor to have you with us today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. John is going to start us out with some singing and meditation. Yes. So I encourage everyone to just drop in and feel your heartbeat because uh, that's the essence of this work is the heart and feeling the space inside your chest. I talk about connecting with your little drummer, your own heartbeat. So just closing your eyes and just centering yourself and feeling your own heartbeat. We call in the great ones to open the road for us so we can realize our humanity in this world and the next. Wouldn't 
So just a small little invocation, just welcoming in the ancestors of our humanity, our collective humanity, that we may learn how to listen and that we may learn how to respect life. Thank you so much for that, John. You are one of the first white men in modern or recent history to become a fully initiated Sangoma in the Kosa lineage in South Africa, the same tribe as Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, who helped resolve or heal apartheid. Well, it's according to my elders at the time. South Africa is a big country, so there might have been a number of other white uh, people, but uh, according to my my own elders at the time, that's what they they hadn't heard about any other white people at the time. And uh, since I finished my apprenticeship, there's been a number of other white folks in South Africa who have who have heard the call to become a Sangoma and they've done the training. And I've met quite a few. So uh, it's clear that it's not about the color of your skin. It's uh, it's about the call of the spirit, and uh, and I think that's that's the point that was being made by a number of my elders, that uh, the great spirit doesn't see color, the ancestors don't see color, they see a human being, and if they want the human being to become a shaman, become a sangoma, then they come and they call them. And, and that's the way it goes. You started having dreams from the medicine woman who you eventually found who trained you. And she also dreamt of you. Well, I had many dreams over the years. And, uh, and, and then I had this, this sickness, which, I call the, which they call the Twaza illness in South Africa, which is the traditional shamanic calling illness. So with, with, with traditional Sangoma culture, you don't decide to become a Sangoma. You are called by the, the ancestors in the spirit world. And often it comes with, with, uh, with, a, with an illness, quite a profound illness. And that illness is not just spiritual, but it's also physical because your whole electrical system gets rewired. Your whole nervous system gets rewired. So in my experience, I, I got a lot of physical symptoms and I got very sick. So that was basically losing lots of weight, having a lot of stomach issues and uh, a lot of sleepless nights. But the biggest thing was really the weight loss and uh, as if I'd drunk maybe 10 cups of coffee. And in those days, I didn't really drink much coffee. And uh, so the whole body was had the sense of a tremor. So my hands were shaking. And it was like connecting to a power socket, an electrical grid, where your whole body just gets, it's just vibrating. So, uh, but it's quite painful, actually. So um, when I met my teacher, Mam Gwevu, which I speak about in my book, Leopard Warrior, she says that she dreamt about me the night before I met her. And then she asked me what took me so long to come to her. And I said to her, apartheid, because it was against the law for, for people to, to basically mix in some ways. So basically white people couldn't just go into the townships where the black folks were living, unless you're part of the military or the police or you're a church, a church person. 
um, i.e. a reverent or a, or a missionary. And the same time it was, it was against the law for black people just to walk around towns unless they, unless they had a pass or some kind of book that was giving them permission to travel. So there wasn't a lot of mingling in terms of white people going into townships and, uh, and then training to become Sangormas. So uh, it was quite a complicated time and people can find out a bit more about it. But the good news is, is that it's, it's all over now. It doesn't, this was many years ago. And, um, so my first meeting with my teacher, Mam Guervu, it was a very powerful meeting. And she asked me what took me so long to come to her. And like I say, I said apartheid. And then she said, ah, Tikrong Kosiam. And that tear went moving down her face. And we both looked at each other. And in that moment, there was no, white person and black person, man and woman, indigenous and modern. There was no, uh, there was no differences between us. There was just two human beings that fell in love with one, one, with one another. So in that moment, we were just falling into this situation that I was in and she felt this complete compassion for me. And, and I felt her compassion and I also just felt this incredible love from her. And there was just this love, you know, incredible love between two people. And then she asked me if I wanted to become her apprentice. So there again, it's important for people to realize that, especially in the Sangoma tradition, you don't ask to become a Sangoma. You have to be invited. And so in that moment, she asked me, if I'd become her apprentice. And I was quite nervous, to be honest. I didn't know what it would mean to become an apprentice, an apprentice Sangoma. So I said to her, what does it mean to become a, a, a Sangoma? And she said, to become a Sangoma means that you will stop being so sick and that you'll be able to heal people in different ways because the ancestors will move through you. And, uh, and that stage I, I was struggling to, to walk. I had very bad knees. So I, I agreed. I said, okay, I, I will take, I will become your apprentice. So then she said, okay, well, tomorrow come and I'll give you your first white beads, which will be a sign that you are my apprentice. And, and then this is what happened. When you were born, you had white around your eyes, and there's also a significance to the white clay as well around the eyes? Yes. In the Krosa culture, when you become a Sangoma, they put clay over your face, and that's a sign that you are entering the liminal world. The liminal world is the world of the ancestors of the spirit realm. And they say that that's the realm that's going to teach you. The spirit world is going to teach you. So that's why they cover your entire face in clay, white clay. And then when you start coming out of that world in the sense that you start to complete your apprenticeship, then you just have the white clay of your eyes as a sign that part of you is always walking in the liminal or spirit world and the other part of you is is in this physical world so being a sangoma is almost like uh, learning how to operate in two worlds the world of the spirit and in the physical realm at the same time 
And uh, that's why there's been stories of madness or close to close to to madness for for many sangomas because of that of that entering into the spirit world and and then knowing what is the spirit world and then what is this physical realm and then sometimes there's confusion happening and um so sometimes it can be misdiagnosed as mental illness when in fact it's a it's a very profound spiritual calling in becoming a, a sangoma so when i uh, when i was born in cape town i had this white uh, clay or birth skin over my eyes and it was so it was so unusual that my mother turned to the doctor and said he looks like he looks like a little albino <laughs> because she had just come from she had just come from australia and the aboriginal people had um had clay on their faces so she thought i looked like one of those aboriginal people in australia and the the doctor was very surprised and and the crossa nurses kind of ululated and um and my mother forgot that completely until she met my teacher years later and the first time she met my teacher my teacher came through the gates and she had all these beads and beautiful headdress on her and this white clay around her eyes and uh and then my my mother remembered my birth and then when we were sitting down having tea she said oh mum gwevu i want to ask you something and she said okay and then she described how i was born and this was all done through an interpreter because my teacher doesn't speak english and um and then my teacher said yes well i was born like that as well a lot of asangomas are born with that clay as a sign of of them becoming sangomas in future as a sign of them being blessed by the spirit world you completed a 10 year apprenticeship and that was many years ago now And when you went through that process, you didn't know when your apprenticeship would be complete. How is it now for you all these years later being a shaman or a sangoma from that initial experience? Well, I I feel that there's always so much to learn. So I I feel that I just touched something profound, but there's so much more to touch and to learn and to experience. and because the root of it is is learning about the root of the teaching is engaging with what we say is tobeka tobeka means humility so in the beginning you there's a period of time where you you serving your teacher and you serving the community and humility is very very important because they say that we as individuals don't know much but the spirit world is the world that educates us so we have to listen and we also have to listen to our elders so now that my apprenticeship is being finished for many years um those those roots or seeds that took root inside of me have taught me to have taught me that, that there's so much i still don't know <laughs> <laughs> there's so much i don't know so i every day is a fresh day and there's and there's this this so much to engage with in terms of the spirit and the spirit world and plants and animals i'm constantly constantly being being taught you know on a daily basis for those who may be listening who are new to the term shaman 
And Sangoma, could you just describe briefly what a shaman does and how you help people and the planet? The shaman term comes from Siberia and it referred to the traditional healers who were metaphysicians and diviners and mediums. And they went through this long apprenticeship to become shamans. So a shaman is a spirit doctor. And nowadays we have contemporary shamanism and we have traditional shamanism. So with contemporary shamanism, people can do an apprenticeship or they can do a shamanic practitioner course in various places around the world. And then traditional shamanism is where you are called by the spirits and also where you are called by a particular lineage and tribe and then they train you. Now, a similar thing in terms of contemporary shamanism would be the call of the spirit. So often people feel some kind of dis-ease inside of them and then they feel they need to do some training or they need to do a practitioner course and they need to start learning how to work with their dreams and with their spirit. So on that level, there's, there's a lot of similarities. Now, with traditional shamanism, the difference is, is really the apprenticeship side of it and working with a particular lineage or tribe. And often that involves learning the language or learning the, the ceremonial side of it. So learning songs, learning rhythms. Because a big part of, of, of shamanism, uh, whether it's contemporary or traditional, is drumming and singing and holding a rhythm and working with dreams so at the end of the day, it's about being a spirit doctor, a metaphysician, and our ancestors or those folks around the world who've held this wisdom for thousands of years have been the, yeah, the spirit doctors of, of humanity. So when we're working with a lineage, like with a crosser lineage or the Swazi or Siberian or the different lineages in North America, you're calling on those old spirit doctors from way back to come and be with you and to teach you. So that knowledge is timeless and it keeps coming back and it keeps coming through the living. And our job, our job as shamans, whether you're contemporary or traditional, it doesn't matter. The, the most important thing is that you hear the call of the spirit, and then you take some kind of action to heal the living and heal the split between, between the heart and the mind, between what you think is real and what is real, and also heal the split between, between you could say, that apartheid between man and nature. Because nowadays, this this terrible, terrible actions towards nature in terms of animals, in terms of poaching and species extinction and things like that. So, one of the things that shamanism can do today is is help people reconnect to their inner nature. And as you connect to your inner nature, then you connect to nature outside of yourself. And then the split or this apartheid inside between um, between your heart and your mind and between you and nature that, uh, that can heal. So that's in essence the job of the shaman is to hear the call of the spirit and then take some kind of action to heal that call, to, he to hear it 
and to and to heal our relationship to to nature. The name you were given when you became a shaman is connected to healing cultures. Yes, the name my my teacher Mam Gwevu gave me is Lindaba, and that means the one who communicates over long distances. It's also the bridge between 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 people, so the communicator, and also the the communicator or the person who, who communicates from the spirit world into this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it literally is like telephone wires. The, the literal translation is someone who's like connected to the telegram, the telegram poles. You know, the old telegram poles. Yeah. Um, it's it's something like that. <laughs> How common is it for a contemporary or traditional shaman to have an illness or be a wounded healer? I think I think it's very common because what's calling people to 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 train or to become a shaman or to to go through an apprenticeship is disease. So where your spirit and your soul is is frayed and you don't feel well. Depression is a big one nowadays where you feel something is not right, where you're losing energy and you just don't feel well. Um, it might be nightmares. People might struggle with their dream life. But at the end of the day, it's some kind of dis-ease that is calling you to, to, to listen more deeply to your spirit and then do some kind of training. How can we heal soul sickness? I think soul sickness is is something that we can heal through listening to ourselves. So the first thing is is recognizing whether you are sick or not. So it's interesting because a lot of my traditional friends in South Africa would would be considered to be suffering from material poverty. So they suffer from material poverty in the sense that they they don't live in the way of for a lot of people in North America, a lot of middle class people. They 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 will struggle with basic necessities, food, um, clothing, a lot of things they're going to struggle with. But what they do have is spiritual abundance and wealth in terms of dreaming and connection to their ancestors. So overseas, in the Western world, people might have material wealth, but they have spiritual poverty. So let me talk a bit about spiritual poverty, because that's very, very important. And spiritual poverty is basically where someone doesn't dream. You know, they don't remember their dreams. And most importantly for us, they don't connect to their ancestors. So... When I went back to South Africa and I spoke to my elders about my time overseas, and then I just shared with the people, with with my teacher about people I met and clients that I I worked with, and then I said to my elders, a lot of the people do not dream about their ancestors. There was silence, and they didn't know what to say, because for people to not dream about their ancestors. There's no answer. It's such a serious thing that people have no response for that. And uh, 
So when I said to, to, to my, my teacher's husband, who's a tribal elder and one of the men that initiates the young boys to become men, I explained it to him and then I said to him, Tata, andifuni ukohama pesheya. I said, Father, I don't want to go overseas. Ndikumbula nina. Ndikumbula nina. I, I, I miss you too much. I want to stay. I want to stay here in South Africa. And then he looked at me carefully and he said, So he said that uh, when you hear the call of the ancestors, you must listen, you must go overseas, you must help these people. And we'll be here for you. Don't worry, we'll always be here for you. So for them to hear about people who are not connected to the ancestors is something so tragic that all it brought was silence. So this is what has inspired me on my journeys overseas in terms of the northern hemispheres outside Africa. Europe, the Western world, America, North America, Canada. There's a growing illness, and it's the illness of forgetting, forgetting your humanity, forgetting your ancestors, forgetting your dreams. And the only thing people are remembering or feeling is their own desires. So it's almost like the zombie mentality that's coming in, and that is having that direct impact on the environment because people see themselves as separate and then they buy indiscriminately and they become rampant consumers and they're not thinking about the rubbish that they are that they are throwing away they're not thinking of the environment they're not thinking about the plants they're not thinking about the animals that are dying in the sea they're only thinking about themselves and they are not even thinking about their own ancestors so the way to heal this is for people to start feeling their own blood and their own bones, to feel their own inner world, to feel their own dreams, and to ask themselves the question, do I connect to my ancestors? Do I dream? How clearly do I dream? And if the answer is I don't remember my dreams and I'm not connected to my ancestors, then some work is needed. And the way to start healing that is just to realize something is wrong here. To realize, okay, maybe I have spiritual poverty. And if someone has spiritual poverty, they need some food. And then the next thing is to start looking for the right food to eat, spiritual food, and then to start developing some kind of diet where you start eating the right foods and start listening to the spirit. Because we say the spirit inside of us, your soul, is something that grows your entire life. So you could have an eight-year-old child that could have the call to be a, a Sangoma. And you could have an eight-year-old child that could have the eyes of, a, of like a Rinpoche, of a senior Sangoma and uh, like a Rinpoche in the Tibetan world, and they could have the call, and then they could start an apprenticeship at eight years old or even six years old. And at the same time, you could have someone who turns 81 years old, and they are called by their ancestors at 81 years old to start an apprenticeship. 
and then they can start an apprenticeship. Age does not matter. The soul and the spirit is timeless. I have witnessed an eight-year-old child with the energy of a senior Sangoma calling people to become Sangomas, and at the same time, I have witnessed an 81-year-old person who is young in the way of the Sangoma who receives a call to train, and it's the most sublime thing to see. For those listening who might be thinking, how can I connect with my ancestors? What can you suggest? The first is to start listening to yourself, listen to your own heart. So you put your hand on your heart, you feel your own heartbeat, and breathe into it. And then in quiet moments, feel the wind moving through you. Feel the breath of life and feel the rhythm of your own heartbeat, how it makes your whole body shake. Feel that and sink into that. Listen to that. And then that is the beginning to developing a relationship with your soul, with your spirit. How can we connect more with our dreams? You know, sometimes I hear people tell me, oh, I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams. Well, again, the first thing is to see dreaming as important. And if it is important for you, then you need to create some space for it. So how you go to sleep at night is important. So making sure there's not too much gadgets around you when you go to sleep, that you feel a a little bit of stillness around you, maybe do a little bit of breathing, quietening your mind, listening to your heartbeat. So how you go to sleep is important. And then also what's important is the way you wake up. So it's preferable that you don't wake up with, with an alarm. It's preferable that if you do have an alarm, that, that it, it wakes you up gently, just um, so there's no strong uh, coming into the world where you can you're giving yourself a chance as you're coming back into the world to, to remember your dreams. And then the next thing is, is I don't recommend picking up your phone and checking your email when you wake up straight away, because that's the first thing that's going to make it hard for you to remember your dreams. Because as you're coming into this world again from dreaming, there's a period of kind of quietness that, that, that you need to honor. So what I try and do is, 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 only turn my phone on and check emails after after breakfast. So after I've had some coffee and after I've had you know, after I've had breakfast and I've given myself a chance at least the first hour of the day to to come into the world and remember what happened during the night. So that is what I'm talking about is creating space, spiritual space inside of you because it's important for you. For me, it's very important because we navigate the spirit realm through dreaming. It's one of our, it's one of our, our skills or one of our tools for the, the spirit to connect with us and give us messages is through dreams. There are other ways like through drumming and through going into trance and through divination and things like that. However, in terms of our day to day practice, our dreams are one of the spaces through which the spirit world communicates with us. So it's very serious. So that's why I, I, 
I'm, I make it important. It is important for me. So the next thing is to also have like a little book or a little diary next to you so you can make some notes when you wake up. And then once we have our dreams, what do we do with them? They, they communicate with us, I gather. Well, the dream process and listening and working with your dreams is one of the oldest spiritual practices known to man. Uh, it's one of the oldest practices that our ancestors, that our forefathers, our foreparents used to connect to spirit. Okay. And dreams are often a riddle. And riddles leave you with a question of, I don't know. And that's a good question because it's the start of building humility. It's the start of building, we say, Torbeka. And humility leads to grace. Grace leads to spiritual awareness. So to always look for an answer to your dreams, sometimes there aren't answers. Sometimes the riddle is enough to leave you with a sense of humility. I don't know what this means. And that's okay. And uh, But sometimes you want to find the answer to the dream because it might be a warning, it might be some instruction. So it's good to write the dream down, do a little bit of research, maybe share it with a friend or someone you trust and listen to your inner guidance. This is the most important thing. The dreams are calling you to listen to your intuition and then take some kind of action because sometimes dreams are calling you to do something, to answer a call, to take a course, to change direction. And, uh, and sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes you make mistakes, but it's all part of learning. It's all part of learning the riddle the riddle of the dreams is also the riddle of life. Life is a riddle. We don't know the answers. How do you as a shaman help people with divination? Well, divination is to divine means to read the spirit, read the soul of someone. So when someone comes to me for a, a divination, I throw the bones in the traditional Kosa or Zulu way. And, uh, and then I see the pattern of the bones on the, on, on the skin, on the ground. And then I can see where someone is, is, is struggling and where they, they are strong. So basically, people's strengths and weaknesses are shown in the divination. And often we are also shown then how someone can grow their spirit, how they can grow their soul, how they can get stronger. And that often involves some kind of ritual involves listening to their ancestors, doing some prayers. The whole practice is a practice of engaging with your own torbeka, your own humility, your own place on this earth. And that place is part of, of life, you know, part of this incredible life force, which is connected to the the insects, it's connected to the ants, it's connected to the trees, it's connected to the wind, it's connected to the, the owls, it's connected to the stray cats outside, it's connected to the coyotes. We are connected to all of that life. And as we let go and connect to our spirit, and we learn to grow our spirit, then that connection gets stronger. So divination is all about where is someone in terms of their soul's growth? 
What do they need to do to grow their soul and their spirit to connect to their ancestors? So often in a divination, we also get to see how someone is connected to their own ancestors or spiritual parents. What is the relationship and how can that relationship get stronger? If someone has a wound connected to their ancestral line, such as maybe slavery, and they feel that they're resistant to connecting with their ancestors, what might you suggest? They need to forgive their ancestors. And when we're dealing with ancestors, we're not dealing with the last couple of hundred years. We, we, we're really dealing with five, 10,000 years. When you're dealing with ancestors, don't think small. Don't think the last couple of hundred years. So if, for example, you're in that unfortunate position where you are aware that some of your ancestors were, for example, slavers and, and slave uh, masters, then you feel that sense of shame in the living and in this current generation. And so then what, what you would need to do is, is go back in time to when your ancestors were more peaceful, where there was, when there wasn't that, uh, disharmony in your ancestral line and ask for strength to help heal that indignity that has been brought into your family because of their actions. And on the other side is if your, if your ancestors were slaves and they were mistreated and they experienced indignity, then it would be the same thing when you go back in time when you, your ancestors were strong and they, and they didn't have to suffer those indignities and call on strength to help heal those, those injuries and traumas that, that occurred due to slavery. So that's, uh, we, we think of it like a tree. When a tree is, is sick, it has to go deeper within its roots to call on healing sap to strengthen the tree. You, it doesn't stop, a tree doesn't stop sucking in the sap because there is a, a wound to one of its roots. No, it goes into all the other roots that are strong and it goes deeper and it pulls deeper into the earth to pull in nutrients and nourishment. So this is what we are called to do as, as, as human beings. When there is an illness, in the family, in the ancestral family, due to war or due to, uh, due to the illness of addiction or abuse, we have to go back further in time. That's great. Yeah. How does the singing and chanting and dancing help connect us to ourselves, to our ancestors, nature, and help us be well and heal? I think when you're chanting and you're singing, then you feel a sense of, of love. You feel a sense of peace in your heart. And often when you, you're very deep within a chant or within a song, you lose connection to your own story, whether the story is good or bad. And there's a sense of freedom that happens there. And I know the yogis will speak about chanting as a way to reduce our karma. So karma can be good and bad, and, and karma is all about stories, stories that we have accumulated, and it becomes like luggage. And sometimes that luggage can be very heavy and can really weigh you down. And when you are chanting and singing, all you're thinking about is the beauty of the sound 
And it's a bit like a bird. When I listen to birds and they sound so free, they are sharing their chant with the world. And uh, I always say when you are singing and chanting, you need to do it like a bird, like a bird that's communicating its spirit with the world. Lovely. Yeah. When reading your book, I loved how you described that the pounding your feet into the earth and how that helped you feel more connected to earth and to yourself as well. Yes, we are all like electrical currents. We have electricity going through us. And when when we are not connected to the earth, we become unstable because all of all electricity needs three points. You've got the live wire, the neutral, and you have the earth socket. And if electricity is not earthed, it becomes dangerous. And this is in a nutshell what's happened to the human race. A lot of people nowadays are not earthed. They're not connected to the earth. So the danger often comes where they are unstable in terms of themselves with their own emotions, with their own disconnection to nature. And as people get disconnected to nature, they become a threat to nature. So because their actions are not wise, their actions are just about them. And um, so when we connect to, to the earth through our feet, we feel that sense of love for the earth and our own electrochemical system gets grounded into the earth and we just naturally just start to feel better because our electrical being is being earthed. It's being, it's like being connected to, to nature again. And it's a physical experience. This is not just a emotional or spiritual experience. It's a physical experience. And um, so I often say to clients, if they're not feeling great or they're getting overly emotional, I'll often just say to them, go for a walk. And don't walk with any earbuds in or any anything in your ears. Just listen to the sounds of nature or the traffic or whatever. Just ground yourself through your feet. Go for a walk and preferably go to where there's some trees and feel your feet on the ground while you're walking. If you have to go a little bit slower, do that. And just allow yourself to just stomp on the earth. Yeah, that's great. How do we reach those people who mm, are really taking advantage of the earth's resources and not being aware of their connection to nature? Well, that's difficult because you can't force someone to do something. It's very difficult that. The first thing we have to do is work on ourselves. And uh, so we have to change our own relationship to, to nature. And that involves prayer, it involves listening to, to, to ourselves first. So we can look at the animal world and want to run out there and help the rhino and help the animals that are being decimated by poachers. But the first thing we have to do is we have to connect to our own spirit first and then pray and ask, what can I do to help in this situation? So one of the ways I've been led to help is to bring people on retreats to to the Kalahari and to Botswana to teach modern people indigenous African skills. And before I did that, the one day, 
um, I brought it, brought people into a lodge in the Kalahari. And one of the lodges I went to was actually one of the last places where they had rhino with horns because the poaching epidemic got so bad that the way of saving the rhino was to actually take their horns off. So I remember sitting around a watering hole in Botswana and noticing that these rhinos had horns and I was very lucky to observe them. And the fact that they had horns was a threat to them. And the response by the government was to remove the horns so that the poachers don't take the lives of the rhino. So this was very poignant for me when I started my retreat. And what was poignant was teach people how to listen to nature, how to listen not just to their own voice, but the voices of the wild ones, of the animals around them. And then ask those animals, how can we help you? So when I was in the Kalahari running retreats, a friend of mine was the first retreat I did. A friend of mine from America was with me and he approached one of the, one of the Kalahari uh, Bushmen, one of the Khoisan trackers that was with us. And he said to him, what can we do to, to help, you know, help the situation with, how can we help you? You know, what can we do to help you? And, uh, and the Kalahari, the Bushman guy, the tracker, he said, keep coming to visit us, keep coming to the Kalahari, because the more people that come and support us, it'll make it easier for me to make a living, and it'll make it easier for my family, and then you'll also understand about nature, and you'll also understand about how we can protect nature and these natural resources. So just keep bringing people to visit us to come on these retreats. Every day, people are eating many animals, meat people. Many people feel they don't really have a meal unless they're eating meat. How do we engage in that while also respecting animals and nature? Or is that something we need to look more closely at is our consumption of other animals in our diets? I think, I think people need to be more mindful generally of everything, actually, what you, what you're spending your money on, what you're buying and what you're eating. Definitely. I'm not going to say people shouldn't eat meat because that's a bit judgmental. Um, but I think people should be careful on how much meat they're eating. Is it necessary to eat meat every single day? I'm not sure. It's a, it's something that each person has to answer for themselves. But it, it, what's, what's clear is that it's a group effort. We say in Krosa, umtu gumtum gabantu, which means a person becomes a, a person or a human being through other people. So the way we engage with the circle of life, with our community and people around us can, can say whether we are a human being or not. So if we're acting as a human being, we need to be compassionate towards other living creatures. And that means that our actions affect other people. So we basically say that uh, 
basically a person becomes a person through other people. So what it means is that our relationship with others is, is, is very important. So in a circle, everyone is equal. And whether you're a prince or a pauper, you are, you are both part of that circle. So if you decide that you, you, you don't want to eat too much meat, then it's affecting that circle. So each one of us has that responsibility. And how the animals are treated as well in that process. Yeah. One of the animals you have on the cover of your book is a leopard. Could you share a little bit about the meaning of that for you? Yes, well, the leopards are, are sacred animals all around the world, and in particular in, in Africa, and in particular in Southern Africa, because I, obviously I can't speak for the whole of Africa. But in Southern Africa, leopards are revered because they are seen as as emissaries from nature. And you'll often see leopard skins or, f or fake leopard skins in, in herbalists and traditional healers' homes and, and shamans and sangomas because a leopard is seen as a, as a, as a creature that moves between the material and the spirit world. And also a leopard represents supreme intelligence in terms of natural intelligence because all their instincts are awake, are alive. So they are an, are, are a, an embodiment of, of having all your, your six senses awake. And it's a teaching for us as human beings that when we want to work with healing, when we want to work to help someone, that we have to awaken and reawaken all our senses so that we are connected to the spirit of life to nature. And in so doing, we can help the person who comes to us for healing. So this is why the leopard is one of the main animal totems for traditional healers around Southern Africa. And also nobility, so statespeople or kings or people who have standing in the community, tribal chiefs, they'll all have um, some leopard skin or, or like I say, fake leopard skin because of poaching nowadays, they'll have that draped around their shoulders as a sign that they are listening to, to the, to the natural world, to the spirit world. And you have another animal behind you as well. That's the guinea fowl. And so that's considered the, you could say the chicken of the bushveld or the messenger of the bushveld. So no matter great or small, the, the spirit world is speaking to us through the natural world. And so we'll often look at the birds and see how are the birds speaking to us because that is a, a way that the spirit world or the ancestral world will be communicating to us through the, through the animals, through the birds. What else might you like to share about how we can help heal our collective humanity and soul sickness as a shaman? I think the first thing is, is to listen to yourself and just ask yourself the question of, am I happy? Am I sad? What, what is happening with you, with your own emotions? What's happening inside you? What's happening with your dreams? And then to be compassionate with yourself, to wrap a blanket around yourself as if you're suffering from some trauma, because nowadays a lot of people are traumatized 
So the way to deal with trauma is to wrap yourself in a blanket and to just breathe into your heartbeat and start to listen to yourself first. And then when you're feeling that you are comfortable with listening to yourself, see if you can listen to someone else. I mean, really listen, not try to finish their sentences, not get bored because they are long-winded with their response or what they're talking about, but really listen to another person. Really listen to them as if you are listening to yourself. And and don't try and give them a, an answer to their problems or try and sort out their problems. Just listen to someone and, and see what can happen from there. Great advice. And is there any story you would like to share about how you've helped heal someone? I think the first thing with, with a healer is we don't heal people. People heal themselves. I think it's arrogance to assume that I think it would be arrogant for me to assume that I heal anyone. As a Sangoma, I just, I'm a simple messenger and people heal themselves. When people are ready to heal and then they are ready to listen and then they heal themselves. The most important thing is for a person to, to listen to themselves and also to trust and have faith and courage that we're living in a, in a very magnetic and powerful world where the universe and the world is just waiting to help you and heal you. You know, the great mother, all the animals, all the spirits, they are just there waiting to heal you and help you. But you have to, you have to be open to it. I think that's where the struggle is. And that's where a Sangoma comes in is to help bridge the spirit world and this material world and help people have the courage to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. So the, the Sangomas who have helped heal me and, and worked with me, the, the great ones that I've worked with have all shown incredible kindness, incredible compassion and incredible patience. So these are the qualities that we all need to develop with ourselves and with one another. I remember this one wonderful Sangoma in, in Soweto that I worked with. And for those of you who might know of Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, he was brought up in Soweto and his mother is Krosa. And uh, so he speaks about his background in Soweto and his book that he wrote um, is a wonderful book. And he, he spoke, he speaks a lot about Soweto. And anyway, I, I used to go and visit this incredible diviner, Makosi in, um, in Soweto. And, uh, she's an older lady and she was an incredible diviner. The way she threw the bones was just amazing. She used to get a lot of people going to her, all different cultures I used to go to her for bone divinations. And I used to just sit with her and I just love sitting with her. She was the most incredible person. And one day as I was sitting with her, she just looked at me and she said, you know, we need to be very patient with people. We need to be very patient because then people will be patient with us. (laughs) (laughs) I've never forgotten that um, because she exuded patience and love 
And I just thought if I could just be a little bit like her, it would be, it would be good because I know I'd feel good <laughs> because she just made people feel so comfortable around them. She didn't judge them. She listened and she was so patient. She just take her time. So nowadays things are so fast because of technology and we need to sometimes slow down with one another and just listen to one another and not judge. And, and the first is to do that with ourselves. And as we do that, then we are creating the seeds or the ground for, for healing, for incredible healing. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to you, John. Is there anything else you would like to share today before we wrap up? The problems that we are facing in the world today can be healed. But the first thing that each person has to do is to listen to themselves and to be kind to themselves. So I wish for the listeners to, I wish for anyone who's listening and watching this to, to just take a breath in, hold your breath and just slowly breathe out and just make a point of being kind to yourself, to listen to your heart and just say, I'm, I'm doing my best. And if you don't feel you're doing your best, then just try harder, but don't beat yourself up. Be compassionate with yourself, please. And then this world is going to change very quickly. John, thank you for your love, kindness, and compassion. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.